The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Well, with two months of 2024 behind us, we've had a three-month break from our journey through the book of Genesis, and we return this morning. And so to just recap the, the story a little, Our central character is Jacob. And Jacob had, with considerable encouragement from his mother, Rebecca, Jacob had cheated his older brother, Esau, his twin, his older twin. He had cheated his older twin, Esau, out of his birthright and his blessing. And Esau is intent on revenge. And so the story says that Esau... Uh, held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing that his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning my father are near. He thought, my dad's not going to live much longer, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so again, it is with his mother's encouragement that Jacob leaves home, heading north to his mother's home and family in Haran. Rebecca farewells him for his safety. Isaac isn't quite so aware of the background, so Isaac calls for Jacob and he blesses him and he commands him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel, take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. By some calculations, for those of who have been around, we remember the story of Abraham sending his servant to find Rebecca as a wife for Isaac. Some estimates are it's about a hundred years since that journey. And so leaving his family, Jacob heads north. When he comes to a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called that place Bethel. And now this morning we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 1. As Jacob continues on his journey and he comes to the land of the eastern people. There he saw a well in the open country and three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. They would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked him, is he well? 
Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and then send them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until the flocks have all gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and he watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob blessed, uh, kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. This is the first time that Jacob has been to this place. And yet in a very real sense, he feels that he's come home. This is family. This is his family's home. This is Abraham and Sarah's family. This is Isaac and Rebekah's family. And as we saw when Abraham's servant did this journey almost 100 years earlier, he was welcomed with open arms. The journey from Beersheba where um, Rebekah and Isaac and Esau have remained, north to here it's about 725 kilometres. So that's a journey like walking from Wellington to Auckland via the Taranaki with no motels and no fast food joints on the way. And yet after such a long journey it seems that when he arrives he's in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And for me that's one of those only God moments. As he arrives, there are three flocks of sheep near the well. And there's a stone sitting on the well. And the shepherds are nearby waiting for the other flocks to arrive. And Jacob says to them, where are you from? Oh, we're from Haran. Jacob's going, tick box, right town. Then he says, uh, any chance you know my uncle Laban? Um, he was grandson of Nahor. And they replied, yeah, we do. Amazing. Is he well? He certainly is, and your timing is perfect. See her, see that woman bringing the sheep over? That's his daughter Rachel, bringing her flock to the well. Now you may remember that Esau, Jacob's brother, was a hunter. But Jacob preferred to be near a home, and therefore he spent his time looking after the flock. Jacob was a man who had a heart for the flock. And so it seems that Jacob, arriving on the scene, looks around and sees these three flocks. Three flocks are gathered. And he says, it's too early in the day for them to be gathered. Just water them and let them go back out to pasture. It's probably around, the, you know, the sun is still high. It's probably hot. And concerned for the sheep, he says, look, water them and let them go. 
And the shepherds go, we can't. And my immediate reaction reading that was, well, we can't because the rock, the, the, the stone is too heavy. But then we find that Jacob was able to roll the stone away by himself. You see, the problem wasn't the weight of the stone. The problem was the protocol. Protocol was, we can't move the stone and water the sheep until the rest of the flocks have arrived. And then they'll all be watered at the same time and the stone can be put back. But as we've followed the story along with Jacob, we've discovered that Jacob really doesn't care much about protocol. After all, he was born grasping at his brother's heel. As he was delivered into this world, he followed his brother Esau, holding on to his heel. And throughout his life, he's pursued the things that Esau had and, and those moments where he stole, took the opportunity to steal Esau's birthright and his blessing, and both of those by deception. So ignoring the protocols, I suspect, comes naturally to Jacob. And he does it on this occasion, I believe, out of concern for the flock, especially his uncle's flock. Sorry, that's the distance of the journey, right up through the, what will be the land of promise, or what is the land of promise. But when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over, rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and watered his uncle's sheep. This is his family. These sheep belong to his uncle. If the other shepherds want to stand by and watch their flocks thirsty, that's up to them. But Jacob doesn't care about protocol. He's going to do what he thinks is the right thing to do. While the sheep, the, uh, sheep are, are drinking, he explains to Rachel who he is and the family connections, and she quickly runs off and tells Laban, who hurries out to meet and to greet and to welcome Jacob. And as soon as Laban heard the news, he comes out, his sister's son, he hurries out to meet him, he embraces him and he kisses him and brings him home. Now, if you're ever worried about the fact that at this point Jacob has never met Rachel before, and out of the blue he walks up to her, gives her a hug, gives her a kiss, that could feel quite uncomfortable. But we need to remember that this is a culture in which a kiss is more than that, because after all, a few moments later, and a couple of verses down, his uncle welcomes him with a kiss. It's a very cultural thing, and it's cultural in the New Testament, and it's cultural in many cultures today. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And in 1 Corinthians 16, and in 2 Corinthians 13, 12, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. When I say, what does God say? Do it. Take into account the context in which you live. The church I pastored in Melbourne had lots of Middle Eastern folk, and it was like probably the, the hardest part there was known to you kiss one cheek or two, and I think in some cultures it's three cheeks, and it's like, that gets really confusing. I was told that the more appropriate interpretation or translation of this verse in our culture is greet one another with a holy hug. And I'm good with that. But actually there are a lot of people who aren't. 
And so I think we greet one another with a holy respect. Sometimes I want to take, most of the time, I want to take the Bible absolutely literally. But sometimes I understand that there are some cultural boundaries in place. But all that said, this was a beautiful moment. Over a period of 100 years, this is really the first connection back to family that we're actually told about. We've heard that news has travelled south before, but this is such a precious moment, a profoundly emotional moment after such a long journey and so many decades to finally reconnect with family and to come to a place with such a strong sense of being home. When I first read this story and as I began to think about my message this morning, I kept wondering, so what's going on here? What's our message? What's our key thought that we need to take away this morning? And then I'm reminded that for the next four months, we're going to be looking at Jacob's story. Jacob is such a central character in the biblical narrative. In fact, he's more than that. He is so central to world history. Jacob, as many of you will know, will go on to have 12 sons. And in time, those sons will have families. They will become tribes. And Jacob's name will become Israel, and his descendants will be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And the rest of the Old Testament story through from here, and most of the New Testament, and in fact, world history continues to be touched by the descendants of this man. But many of us don't like Jacob. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's never satisfied. We prefer our lives to be comfortable, organised and disciplined. We prefer people who do things the way they're meant to be done. The way they're always done. And so we have a certain reaction against people like Jacob in our world. You see, Jacob was always reaching, always striving after something. He was never satisfied. He was always grasping at something, whether it was his brother's heel or his brother's inheritance. And we don't really like people like that. For one thing, we like people who are satisfied with what they have. But more importantly, people who are always striving after something, they kind of come and mess up our comfortable little worlds. We don't like people who are often prepared to do almost anything, it seems, to get what they want. You see, when we think of a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I'm content. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. We love that picture of the shepherd. Don't we? And we don't like people who want to come along and stir up that water. And yet, the same shepherd who wrote that stood before King Saul one, one day and he said, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. 
This is the whole David and Goliath story. And David says, When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different because he has defied the armies of the living God. David understood what it was to be a good shepherd who led sheep beside quiet waters, but he also knew what it was to stand up and fight for those things that needed to be stood up for and fought for. Of course, the last few weeks we've been focused around John 10, where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. He says, I have come that you might have life to the full. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. We love, and we sing at Christmas about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. So for those who know me will appreciate why I appreciated that meme. If anyone asks you what, Jesus, what would Jesus do, remind him that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. You see, Jesus was in the temple. When Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out those who were selling. He said, it is written, those, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Every day he was in the teaching in the temple and the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. You see, the preachers, teachers of the law, they loved the comfortable place in the temple. They loved the way they had all their protocols in place, all the right things to do. And Jesus came and literally turned their tables and their world upside down. Jesus didn't care about the protocols. And Jacob was a little bit like that. He didn't care about the protocols. He was trying to do what he believed was the right thing. And so when all of the flocks arrived, he would have just simply removed the stone when the flocks were ready to be watered, not waiting till all the others were there. Can you imagine all of the others arriving, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine flocks, and then they take the stone off him, and the crowd waiting to get to the water? You know, sometimes the protocols are not that bright. Sometimes they need to be challenged. Sometimes the tables need to be turned. And most certainly Jacob didn't always get it right. You see, like most of us, certainly like me, Jacob still had a lot to learn. But God was working on him. And God was working through him and God had a plan for him. See, God needs people who will flip over tables. God needs people who will push boundaries. Teenagers, you didn't hear that. But actually, I hope the teenagers did hear that. We spend so much of our lives teaching our kids to be compliant. And there are times when we want them to stand up and say, no, that's not how it's going to be. For Jacob, protocols were not a priority. In fact, he could see they were often part of the problem. The priority for Jacob was the flock and especially his family's flock. 
Back in Genesis 25, we read that Isaac, his father, had prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and Rebekah became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her and she said, What's happening to me? So she went to the Lord to inquire and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Now you can't tell me that Jacob grew to be 77 years of age, which is the age they expect he was when he was heading north, without having heard that story. He knew that he was meant to be number one, even if he came out second. You know, it sounds a lot, it reminds me of Isaac, reminds me of Abraham. They knew what God had for them, and some of their biggest mistakes were trying to do it in their own strength. But they were trying to do what they thought was right. And God somehow manages to work it through, even when we get it wrong. God is more than willing and able to use those that others might see as troublemakers, as stirrers. may not be for everybody, but God certainly needs those who are determined to challenge the status quo question, even ignore the protocols, the accepted ways of doing things, because they know and we are called to greater things, life in all its fullness, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. How dare we settle for less? All of us need to pursue what God is calling us to. Ignore the protocols if you have to. Break the rules if you have to. But pursue what God is calling you to. And if you get it wrong, that's okay. I love the picture of God being my, um, I don't know what it is, not the afterguard, but, but God comes along. He's the rear guard. He comes along behind me and he cleans up all my messes. And he loves my heart because he knows the heart. And he looks and he sees Jacob, he sees the heart of a man who will do what God needs for a man who is going to have 12 sons who will become the fathers, the patriarchs of 12 tribes. And so all of us need to pursue all that God has for us. And so I want to leave you with the words of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders all of the protocols, all of the right ways of doing things, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And if you're not sure what perseverance looks like, I think we learn about that next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.